0: Well, hello there. It's Phil Ryan here at the Story High Podcast, the home of amazing audio stories with, yes, yes, another three-story selection. Now, as I sometimes mention, we will at some point run adverts. This is a way of trying to generate revenue because, as you can imagine, we don't make any money. Spotify don't give us any money for this. But we don't care because we love doing this. So let's kick off with a first story from today's collection. And this one I think is rather beautiful. And it's set in a historic setting and I hope it really takes you off to a whole different place the same way as it did to me when I wrote it. And the story is called Endless Sky. Happy listening. Runs with deer looked out from the tree cover. Below by the river mouth his people's teepees glowed in the fading evening light. And tonight he would be marked His 12th year of life, like all the men of the tribe, his entry into the world of men. His father had told him, Be brave, show no face of pain. You are Kiowa, we do not show pain. To be honest, he felt a little afraid. He did not want to shame his family, his father, his mother, his sister. And then a single drum began to beat echoing off the high clay banks by the shoreline. He looked around him. Four other boys, his friends, cloud bear, swift with arrow, eagle feather and running wild horse, they were tied together with a thick hide strap and there before them the shaman stood, his buffalo horned mask, dark and imposing. And then he started to chant. Runs with deer, felt his heart lift. It was time. Be calm. Be be calm, he thought. And slowly they made their way down the small slope, pulled now by the shaman. It all happened very quickly, he thought. The fire circle, the dance, the bone needle, the sharp pricking, the rubbing in of red ochre, the blood. But he moved back into the circle. He did not flinch, not once, And he caught his father's face, full of pride. And then he joined the dance. The deer-hide drums pounded, and round and round they went, lifting their bows up to the stars, calling, calling, as the huge fire crackled, whirling sparks high into the darkening evening. Night had come, and now he was a man, His skin mark said so. The sun shone brightly the next morning. An excitement flew through the camp like the crisp plain winds and it ran through him. The hunt. The great herd had been sighted. They were like the seasons. The buffalo. Every year they came. The lifeblood of his people. Their lives inextricably linked their hides, their horns, their bones, their meat. That was what sustained the Kiowa, helping them survive in the time of the long cold. And Runs with Deer watched his mother. She had his baby sister strapped to her back, like all the other women, and there they were preparing the maize bread. This the men would eat on the short trek. Their camp lay on a bend in the river, high on the bank, the open plains not far. And today... He would join the other men, for he was a man, and his chief would lead him, great bear. He shivered a little. His father had laughed at him that morning, before the sun had risen. There they'd sat, first food, water, his father telling him things, wrestling him playfully. His little warrior, he'd said, and runs with deer had seen the mark, his mark, on his father's chest, next to his heart his name, and that of his sister. His father wore his children on his skin, their last mark, the father before him, hearts close, family strong. He felt calm and his father had prepared him, rubbing the dark mud on his face, dotting the red ochre along his eyebrow, his hunting face. Soon it would be time, And now the whole camp bustled with activity, the riders in Long Valley already taking up position, Great Bear their chief leading them. The forward scouts had gone ahead days ago, their smoke signs clearer day upon day, and Runs with Deer felt good, his friends did too, for this was their time, to show their worth, to show the tribe they were men, men of the Kiowa, to show their marks were true. Hunters, providers, future fathers. And he touched the drying mud on his face, his father now covered, only his eyes bright, a perfect camouflage against the plains. Somewhere in the distance, a horn suddenly sounded and then again, and the whole camp seemed to stop. It was the signal and an urgent silence fell the women now forming a line and they started a low chanting and it ran through him as he walked when a lone voice started to sing the appeal to Gichi Manitou the man of the universe the woman of the universe may our arrows run strong may our spears be true may we not be harmed Kiowa 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 it continued he'd heard the word since he was very small and now he followed the others. He was left towards the back, and he knew his place. It was the tradition. The second wave of riders first, then the ground hunters were the older men, then the bowmen, then the spearmen, and then him, the new men. Runs with deer was going to be a noiser. Their job was to drum and shout once the herd began to move. They had practised, and his father had told him stories of when he had been young. He had to be careful he'd said but the great spirit would be with them and silently he thought of his mother fingering the sweet treat in his pouch. She slipped it in as he awoke and she'd kissed him. He loved her. She was so kind and brave. She'd given him life. She'd watched over him when he was small. In the time of cold when he'd had a sickness she'd wrapped herself to him giving him her heat and he shook himself. Now he was a man and it was time to prove this and a smile crept across his face but he still loved the sweet cake. In front of him the hills seemed to rise and fall and on they walked in silence, their feet whispering through the grass, the morning sun now rising quickly, birdsong filling the air high above them, winged sky messengers whirling and turning, the cawing long and shrill, They knew the signs. Way ahead, Great Bear sat on his horse, his headdress trailing out behind him, their chief, their soul, their heart. And soon the signal rippled down the line. Everyone lay flat. The riders softly left, noiseless like shadows, and he felt the earth still damp, morning mist water on its surface, drying quickly now in the ever-heating sun. Now they crawled. No sound. No noise. The grass barely whispering. He looked off to his far side and a hunter pointed. He nodded. He made a hand sign and the signs were passed. Hunter to hunter. Noiser to noiser. And soon a group of the new men had made their way down the long slope. The long grass now waving in a cool wind. Runs with deer saw swift with arrow his friend. He was smiling and they nodded at each other. He breathed slowly, remembering his father's words. Be still. Be in the time. But he felt his heart beating faster. For then he saw them. On the horizon, shimmering at first. A brown river, dark and weaving. The buffalo. They had arrived. His father had their mark, too, on his spear arm. The sign of the double horn, curved, a hunter's mark. He'd seen it at all the hunters. It was a first kill sign. Important. This was not his time. That would come. And he glanced at his own arm, his first mark. It didn't hurt. The red circle was still bright, and he looked around him at the others, their faces, mud-covered like his, all sharp eyes focused. The brown river of buffalo slowly rolled forwards, the ground beneath them now starting to shake and tremble. Runs with deer breathed in. He was frightened, he knew it, and beside him an old hunter smiled and he felt the man reach out and squeeze his arm tightly. And then he thought of his father's words, be still, be in the time. And he took another breath, longer, slower just like father had shown him. He had to be strong now. Somewhere, another horn sounded. Now, now, now he scrambled to his feet, running forwards, his friends beside him, a long line, and they screamed and they banged their drums, and riders now flew down from the far ridge, they seemed to float along, the sun mist dancing on the top of the waving grass, and the brown river began to move, the very earth shaking at their presence, more riders, men running, the sound of hooves growing louder, louder, the air trembled, the brown river surged forward, now on and on, he saw swift arrow fall, he ran across and dragged him upright, his eyes bright, they touched foreheads briefly, they shouted, they jumped, and the brown river now seemed to run like an arrow, straight and true, riders now moving beside them, arrows singing through the air, and the great beasts fell, their sound deafening, confusing, noisy, dust, the air trembled, and runs with deer felt his panic rising be still, be in the time and he spoke the words and his breath his heart now slowing piercingly a second horn sounded higher, sharp the signal clear and they ran back up the ridge to the safety of the trees on its top line he looked back arrows still flying more great ones fell here and there and he grinned to himself They would eat well tonight and he wondered where his father was he felt so alive the ground still shaking until in a brief moment it stopped the valley floor now empty the brown river passing along a few stragglers left at the back now moving off into the dust-filled distance a cloud in their wake Above him, a distant storm sky rumbled, hanging in the air, but slowly faded until silence fell and the hunt was over. The chanting continued long into the night. The fires spark and red, sending huge flames. Stories were told, songs were sung. His father had made eight kills, eight runs with deer, thought he might burst with pride, eight. And he joined his father, helping with the cutting. It was the way he'd had the blood put to his body. And then a small mark, quick, a horn-arrow head, sharp, pushed into him, down in the valley bottom, his left arm. He hadn't felt it at all. His heart had still been racing the mark now raised on his skin. Two horns, small half-circles and a line, his first hunt mark. They'd stood and sung the song of thanks. They told Gichi Manitou he was their provider, the great spirit. They'd thanked the great beasts for their lives, for the people's food and hope, the hope of the Kiowa, their blood, the Kiowa. And the shaman stood and moved, his mask now decorated with fresh fur and fresh horns, and he made the sounds, and the women responded. Runs with Deer thought of his grandfather. He missed the old man. He joined the great spirit six seasons past, a great warrior, his skin covered in marks, a life long and rich, his journey written. ...on his body... ...for all to see... ...hunter... ...father... ...provider... ...a true man of the Kiowa... ...one day runs with deer... ...would bear his mark too... ...and that of his father... ...when it was time... ...for it was the way... ...beside him... ...a huge gout of sparks... ...whirled up into the night sky... ...and runs with deer smiled... ...high up in the stars... A new hunt would begin. The stories all said so, on such a perfect night as this. The men, the Kiowa, riding moon stallions, arrows of silver light, spears of sunbeams. His grandfather with them. And he trembled briefly. He hoped his life would be long. Then his father came and sat beside him, his face now bright and happy. Runs with deer touched his mark on his father's skin just below his heart and his father pressed his forehead tightly to his son's. My blood, my heart, my life he said, my son. Do you know that's one of my favourite stories I ever wrote. I'm not just saying that it really really is because I don't know, it just came from nowhere one evening when I was writing. And that to me is why I love to write, because it just, I don't know, it fills you with ideas and stuff and inspires you. Now, the second story, well, I didn't have to think too much about this one because it's a true story and it's from our True Stories collection. And these are things that have happened to me or people have told me. And today's story in that selection is called Stacey's Story. And just a quick note, Sometimes, people can be absolutely amazing, and I mean truly amazing. To cut a very, very long story short, in 1989, I met a guy called John Bird, now Lord Bird. And I helped him start the Big Issue magazine. It was just him and me in a tiny office in Richmond in London. And we came up with the name for the thing in my lounge. And the idea was very simple. It originally coming from an American-based model, We were going to create and print a publication that would then be sold on the streets of London by homeless people. They would keep half the initial sale price and give us the other half to create and print the actual magazine. But the magazine was entirely profitless. No big directors on salaries or shareholders. Lean and efficient. That was our watchword. We were funded by The Body Shop, then run by its original founders and owners, the incredibly wonderful and generous Anita and Gordon Roddick, Anita sadly no longer with us. And after it was initially just the two of us, we soon gathered a small team, and the Big Issue magazine to help the homeless launched onto the streets of London, thanks to the PR might of The Body Shop, on September 11th, 1991, in the full glare of the British media. All the TV, the radio, the newspapers, the reporter, they were all there and it was really quite a big deal. Now, if you're not familiar with the Big Issue magazine back then and still now, it's sold by homeless or very low income people who use the money they make to get off the streets and back on their feet. There are many things homeless people lack and they often have other issues, but one of the most pressing is a complete lack of funds And no way to make any money, legally. And as John always used to say, people need money to get out the sticky stuff. And for more information about what they do now, go to the Big Issue website. Just look at their incredible work. I mean, I'm very proud of the fact that the Big Issue eventually spawned a movement today that exists. That operates in 72 other countries. It's street papers across the world. And it helps hundreds and thousands of people. Now, very quickly at this point, I have to point out, I can't take any credit for its later success. I was only there for the first year and a half. But for me, that was the hardest, but the most fun part, creating and launching something from scratch that people said couldn't be done, it wouldn't work, and I guess, yeah, we proved them wrong. Anyway, it was about six months into our initial launch, And one of my tasks, amongst the many tasks I had, was to give a regular promotional big issue talk. And this time it was a manager of a drop-in centre for young homeless people. He'd called me up and said, well, you're looking for people to become official big issue vendors. I reckon it would suit us. So in those first months, I was going to lots of places across London, hostels and drop-in centres, giving my pitch to get people to sign up. Now, Pete, the manager of this particular homeless centre, one for young homeless people, he told us that many of his centre users, well, he thought they were going to be ideal candidates because they could sell the magazine and they were all really keen to make money, unsurprisingly. And so it was, I set off with Alex Cook, another early Vital Team member, number three, in fact, from our little office. and We made our way across London to the homeless youth centre, which lay then behind St. Martin's in the Fields Church. There was something vaguely institutional about all these places back then, no matter how informal they tried to make them feel. In fact, the place looked and felt like a very large, scruffy school common room crossed with a prison wing. There was padlocks on certain doors and barred windows, and official-looking no-drugs warning signs everywhere. But they were dotted amongst torn pop band posters and notices for Friday disco nights. It was in fact a sadly chilling but doomed attempt for officialdom to show a slightly human, welcoming face. But essentially, if you needed to use this place, you were not doing very well at all. We got shown into a basement meeting room, and Alex lit herself another of a non-stop stream of Marlboros for a non-PC now, I know. And we sat and chatted with Pete, the centre manager. And then after a while, various youngsters, whose average age was about 16, began to drift into the room. And they half filled it, until a small group of about six much younger children appeared. And they appeared to be hanging around with a girl not that much older than all who seemed to be leading them. And they all sat down, whereupon she plonked a large bin liner down on the table in front of her. And the girl, who was called Stacy, began immediately chatting with me, asking if the whole thing was a scam. And taking no offence, I began to explain to her exactly what it was all about why we were there and what the big issue did. Now, I wasn't offended, and you shouldn't be surprised at that, because I quickly learnt there were hundreds of initiatives and new ideas every week, every month, constantly coming to help homeless people in London, from the government, local councils, charities, religious groups. It always seemed some new, marvellous help plan was being unfolded, But then, half of these new ideas, or most of them, never seemed to last long. They just ended, vanishing, and they left the poor unfortunate folks involved back exactly in the same terrible place they'd originally been, high and dry again, and still broke and still homeless. Their faith and trust in humanity, however, now just a little bit more battered and bruised. Despite my friendly explanation to her, the rest of the room seemed tense. But my answer to Stacy had seemed to satisfy her at least, and now Pete called the meeting to an official opening, and he introduced me and Alex as coming from a new magazine called The Big Issue that was designed to directly help homeless people. And I began to speak, explaining if they sold the magazine, they could immediately keep half the money they made and then they’d have an income they could control. The basic principle and original simple premise was that by selling a magazine, you could create an income and potentially save for a deposit or initial rent to get a room or a flat. And then, of course, they could continue. They could support themselves selling the magazine until they got a job or went to college, but more importantly, until they started the life they wanted. Now, there was a simple code of conduct which I had written, and it included no drinking or taking drugs while selling the magazine. And of course, generally just being polite to people once they're on their designated sales pitches. And these were generally found outside big stations and shops. Of course, that guaranteed a good footfall of buyers. Many of them were outside body shop outlets, I must point out. And even though we just launched, there was a pretty good pitch system in place. And we thought, yeah, people could actually make some good money. And so I went with my presentation. Still a bit unsure as to how it was going down. Just then, some tea arrived on a tray and then Stacy stood up and opened the bin lighter she brought with her and she explained that her and her little group had just pulled it out of the skip behind a nearby Dunkin' Donut store. It was a regular food source, she unsmilingly explained. Apparently, before they closed, the donut store staff would regularly throw all the stuff that they couldn't sell because it would be stale by the next day into the skip. And of course, Stacy and her charges would go and retrieve it. And now she smiled at me and held the bag out. And I stared into it at a huge congealed pile of stuck together doughnuts, a great stodgy looking mass, glueily held together by multicoloured layers of smashed and mingling sugar and savoury coatings. Well, as you can imagine, to me it looked pretty disgusting. But I realised the whole room was looking at me. So I carried on my talk and I looked for the least crushed one and I tugged it out and I bit into it and sipped my tea in one movement, continuing my explanation about who we were and what the big issue was all about. And Alex, smart as ever, caught my eye and she calmly followed my lead, nonchalantly grabbing a donut and munching it. And then she began handing out some small leaflets we'd had about the big issue. The donuts changed everything. It was as if we'd passed some kind of test. Because suddenly the room seemed to relax and the bag was being passed around with everybody helping themselves. And then the talk really got underway, finally concluding with a lot of interested youngsters saying, yeah, they'd like to sell the magazine, including Stacy and her little group. To sign up to sell the big issue, we asked people to go to our distribution office, which was a rather grand title for a little room we were borrowing from the West London Mission near Baker Street. And once they got there, people could sign up as a Big Issue magazine seller. They got their magazines to sell and got an official Big Issue vendor ID photo. And that way we could number it and show people we were a proper organised organisation. Because it was really vital. That little office, we actually gave out the magazines to the new vendors. And very importantly, had a direct link and daily contact with lots and lots of London's homeless folk. Now, you have to understand something, because in order to succeed financially, we actually needed to sell around thirty thousand magazines a month, which for a brand new publication was a pretty tall order. And I always remember in those earlier days, John and I walking around the central London, talking to vendors, trying to figure out how we could sell as many magazines as we could. Looking back, I kind of think in a strange way we were both giving each other hope this crazy thing we were doing could actually work. Both of us all way too aware of the crushing disappointment and damage we could potentially do to these unfortunate souls if we failed. And to us, failure just wasn't an option. Now, it's an often said truism that many people all seem to want to tell you their entire life stories after you've only just met them a few minutes earlier. It certainly happens to me on aeroplanes all the time. But as I quickly found out, many of the people that sold the big issue, well to them it was a really important thing. They wanted you to know how they'd fallen so far in life. And rarely a week went by without me hearing some story of tragedy and bad luck and ill health and failed business and broken families and a myriad of other life disasters. And some stories were just sadly all too true. And some were just fantasy. But whatever they were, They certainly put my own comfortable life in perspective. And in a way, in my life then, it was a count-your-blessings moment, something I don't think to this day I will ever forget. Anyway, a few days passed and I had to visit the distribution office near Baker Street and meet up with John's brother Peter, who ran the distribution centre. And he had with him that day a new team member, Lucy Russell, and she'd now arrived to help. And just like everyone else, she just got thrown in at the deep end. Luckily, she was a very trained, smart social worker before, but there really was never time to train and develop anybody. You got a basic chat and then bam, start working. You see, we were in a hurry all the time. If you joined us, you just got stuck in. That was just the nature of the project and how we worked. Now, interestingly, There was a kind of underground information network running amongst many homeless people where the best begging places were who to watch out for where the police were good sleeping places and squats the best free food run places and where you could get free clothes and stuff and many of the big issue vendors i met had already tapped into this system and they often volunteered information to us which was very useful and some of it was interesting but sometimes it was just disturbing too as I got there, the downstairs bell rang again, and it now turned out the new edition of the magazine had just arrived. And so Peter disappeared off down the stairs to supervise their unloading from the van, one of his many terrible tasks. Good job he was fit. Anyway, I sat there and I chatted with a vendor I knew very well, and I was reading the paperwork on the desk, and as I saw the file, there were the vendor ID photos. And then I saw Stacy's picture. It seemed she'd signed up that very morning to sell the magazine and bought a little group of kids with her. So I mentioned to him, wow, I only met her about a week back. And the vendor laughed and said he knew her very well. And then he commenced to tell me all about her and her little tribe, as he called it. Apparently, she'd appeared on the streets, as far as he could remember, about six months earlier. She was 16, she had a shaved head and various piercings, and she looked a force to be reckoned with. He said, if you're a young, attractive girl on those streets, you better not appear too available or weak. But what he said had set her apart for him was the small group of kids that seemed to hang around her. He said they were like her children, even though the age difference between them was very slight indeed. The tribe, as he called them, consisted of two skinny twin sisters aged about 12, another girl around 14 and a couple of 15-year-old boys. And he'd heard they were all runaways from abusive homes, the twins simply abandoned by a mother who just never came home one day. And they'd all been taken into care, but received such awful treatment and had such terrible experiences that one by one, they just run away. And of course, like many kids, they'd made their way from different parts of the country to London. London, the fabled place. But then, somehow, by a twist of fate, they'd all been found by Stacy. The three girls had been sleeping behind Euston Station on a heating grill, and the boys had been hanging around in the brightly lit amusement arcades in Piccadilly, and they'd all been incredibly lucky not to have been molested or taken away by the awful scumbags who searched these places looking for poor unfortunates just like them. You see during that first year, I quickly learned a lot more about the real life of homeless people in London. To be frank, it was like an alternate dark universe, a really terrible one at that. London was a magnet, still is. For some reason, many people, both young and old alike, believe that running away to London can solve all their problems. It's a place of fable prospects, but none of them ever, or ever really, materialise. There was also a vague pecking order on the streets, including gangs of violent beggars and addicts who preyed on individuals and each other, and perverts who sought out the young and the vulnerable. Now add to this terrible mix the drug dealers and pimps and gangs who hung around places like Leicester Square and Piccadilly Circus and the mainline stations, and they constantly were snaring the unsuspecting. There were even various weird religious groups trawling the centre of town for converts and they would take them away to farms and factories outside London, many of them never to be seen or heard of again. And then finally, in the real world, there are official homeless hostels and centres, and most of them so dirty and dangerous, only the toughest person would dare to use them. It was, and I'm not making this up, a dark and savage world within a world, just beyond the comfortable world of light, the rest of us live in. And through all of this moved Stacy and her young charges. But those kids had one amazing thing. They had Stacy, 16, tough and smart and fierce and protective as any loving mother. And she kept them together and she organised them and she ensured they were fed and protected and looked after them. And as if this were not all surprising enough to me, I found they befriended an evening standard seller. The main London evening paper used to be on sale back then. Nowadays it's free. And this guy had a couple of pitches, one outside the back of St Martins in the fields, by the small market, close to Trafalgar Square, and the other place in front of Charing Cross Station. He was a huge guy. And somehow he became their unofficial minder. and He would bring them clothes and feed them when they needed it. And the word to the other people on the street was very clear. If anyone touched these youngsters he would come looking for them. And in return they watched his newspaper pictures and helped out when he was busy. And in their own way together they all found a common purpose. Each other. The tribe. Almost by accident they created a family. Now I sat in the office and drank my tears. This fantastic story was told to me. There was more to this girl than met the eye. And as those early months passed by, I regularly encountered her and her charges as I visited the various vending pitches. Over the years, I've often talked about this period of my life to my friends. And I've sat and watched their children happily playing or coming home from school. Coming home like children are supposed to do. Home to love and safety and comfort. But it always made me think of the times by Charing Cross Station back then. When I met these kids whose life experiences sadly contained none of this but at least then they had Stacy and she made a world of difference I once had a long chat with her in a steamy cafe at the back of the strand I met her and it was intriguing to me that a girl whose story to me of homelessness was more about rebellion against her family than any dark reason for her living on the streets But for someone whose current bedroom was a secret space behind some office block in the city, she seemed pretty well adjusted. And she was tough and hardened. Of that there was no doubt. But something inside that girl had made her gather this little group of children together. And she truly and honestly believed it was now up to her to sort them all out. I tell you, people can surprise you. Now, I was incredibly busy back then creating running elements of the paper, but still I found the odd moment to pick up on the various goings on amongst the vendors. And there were just so many characters and amazing stories, but still Stacey's little group often came to my attention. I heard of attempts for her to get them into schools and work, and occasionally she'd even come and see me to get me to write an official letter or call the odd agency on her behalf. But to be honest, she seemed to have everything pretty much under control. And I remember once meeting her with the twins on their way to the zoo. And the two little girls were so excited at the prospect of the trip and they showed me their new coats proudly that Stacy had got them from a charity shop. And Stacy told me the others were selling the paper by Charing Cross Station and they'd all meet up later when they got back. And then, happily and by pure coincidence, I bumped into them again later as I headed back to my home from a meeting. There was Stacy outside the station marshalling them all into a line and I watched as she tenderly smeared a handkerchief across one of the boys grubby faces and I said hello and they stood leaning against her just so very comfortable in their little family group and we stood and chatted about how the paper was doing was it selling and then she said to me it was a bit time for them to be getting off and thanks for the chat and now I watched her and her charges as they happily made their way off along the cooling London evening streets and i watched because they were just so relaxed and comfortable together i'd even heard she'd found a new squat somewhere for all of them and she kept it very secret from the other street folk because as i told you i found out the streets weren't a safe place in any way whatsoever but as i watched them disappear off down the strand it was clear to me she was completely committed to her charges and they to her they were a family To be frank, we helped the vendors wherever we could, but we were a newspaper magazine in practice, not a social agency. We'd set up the big issue, and the slogan always was, it's a hand up, not a hand out. And we wanted to let those who could help themselves. We we weren't a universal panacea, we knew it. But if nothing else, we were a direct point of hope and possibility, and importantly, money, where before there was at best either little or none. And in my mind, Stacey and her charges seemed to be taking complete advantage of everything we had to offer. She saved money, she told me, they all did. And despite all the obstacles, she'd set herself the amazing task of finding each child a better place, a place off the street. I got to meet the evening standard seller one time and I won't forget that. He told me we were doing a good job giving him a way to earn money. And when he talked about Stacy, you could see the pride in his eyes. And I could see next to him, he had two of them, the youngsters sitting there selling the papers and running errands for him and the nearby market traders. He had a family of his own, he said. He, he couldn't take the kids in himself. And he, he, he would have, but, you know, he just couldn't. But he did what he could. And I can tell you, I never met a kinder, a more thoughtful, wonderful man. Well, it was busy. We were a growing organisation. And as the year ended with more work than ever, I found less and less time to find out what was actually going out on the streets as the big issue got bigger and bigger. Until one day, I heard the final chapter in Stacey's story from a new guy in our distribution office at Seemed the twins had both been adopted by a distant relation of theirs and gone back to school. One of the boys, well, she'd got him a grant, found him a council flat, and he'd started college. Whilst the other boy and girl had got full-time jobs in the market. And now, they all had places to live of their own. A home. And it was all down to Stacey. She'd done it all for them. Because now they were all off the street and on their way to having a normal life and it was all down to one incredible and dedicated amazing 16-year-old girl who clearly loved them all and they loved her and as for stacy well she finally effected a successful reconciliation with her family and she returned home and started college But as far as the tribe were concerned, she'd done what was needed. And although the unique family unit she created wasn't required anymore, it had really done its job. And thinking about it now, perhaps all of her charges grew up and had families of their own, although just like me, I don't suppose they'll ever forget that first real family of theirs, where love and cuddles was an offer to those who needed it, and still there if you didn't. And at the heart of this family was someone whose heart was big enough for them all. And as I finish this story, this true story, I'm painfully aware that this particular account has a happy ending set amongst the seer stories I have from that time whose endings were more often than not tragic and terrible. But, but hope is so often in short supply and that's why I wanted to tell you this story. And Stacy showed me that hope can flourish in the most unlikely of places. Now, I'm not being trite or cliched because I'm lucky and I'm privileged, I, I, I know that. And I just believe I've been so lucky to have met so many wonderful folk on my travel through life. Because some people are just very, very special. And young stacy was one of those people a truly amazing human truly well as you can imagine that story had an effect on me which is why i wrote it and i still think about it even when i read it and uh, listen to it today because that was an incredible person and i was kind of lucky to meet them i figure you see those kind of stories they're kind of I don't know markers in your life they're important moments that happen I don't know why they happen they maybe teach me something or make me feel something and then that's kind of what stimulates writers and so back to my normal thing at this point in the podcast why don't you try and capture a true story that happened to you just a small thing just an anecdote maybe one side of an A4 page just to set that memory down and if it's a memory you want to share with other people, you could even send it to them. Because I think to be lost sometimes, a cup of tea, a cup of coffee, glass of wine, glass of beer, and sit and write, and it's something that you experience and lived, is quite a wonderful and calming thing to do. Especially if you've had a kind of hectic day. It's a kind of weekend thing. And maybe you'd get into it. You could even create your own book. That's me being a bit ambitious. Anyway, anyway. Back to our final story. Now, this one's from the COVID times, not technically the COVID times, but inspired by, and it's called The Last Teabag. And yeah, it's a bit dark, but I think, I think you'll think it's worth it. Today was a bad day. He'd begun to chart his days in this way. Some days were good days. Some days were bad days. Today was a bad day. He watched the water turn a light brown. That was it then, the last tea bag. He could get, what, maybe three more cups from it. He quickly lifted it out and set it into a little egg cup. It was in the shape of a pink foot, a novelty item. He couldn't remember where he'd found it, but it made him smile. Now, All days were the same, really. He'd long since abandoned calling them anything else. They were good or they were bad. Glumly, he spooned some powdered milk into the cup. No shortage of that, thank goodness. He sat in the sunshine. The low building sat sturdily at the end of what had clearly been a runway. It had been a kind of storage shed light tower. And it suited him just fine. A few thousand yards away, the crosses on the long, low line of graves cast a shadow. He'd placed them there, in those first months, afterwards. His big stroke of luck. All things considered, he had been lucky, after a fashion. It had all started, really, with the accident, Although technically, it had started with the virus. The whole world had been in lockdown. The virus was everywhere, around the world. COVID-19. It had killed thousands. Different countries had been hit differently. Most of it was down to politics. The leaders around the globe had responded very differently. He blew on his tea. It was a shame. He'd miss it. The virus had originally spread from China. COVID-19, named for its discovery in 2019. That's, that's what he remembered. Various theories about it circulating on the internet. Bats, the CIA, space aliens. He laughed a dry chuckle. No more internet now. 2022. The beginning of the end. At first, most countries had contained it quite well. Some were very good, but others were very badly hit by the comparison. And then that first year had turned into 2021. The USA and Great Britain were recovering. They'd lost more people than Europe. Both leaders of both countries handling their responses disastrously. Brazil, Russia. Wow, those idiots. He struggled to remember their names. It really wasn't that important now. Those countries had lost hundreds of thousands of people. It was just so sad. And the whole world had struggled. Economies close to collapsing. But somehow, things had begun to get better. There were some mutations that had caused some concerns. But then the vaccines had been invented. The death rates fell. In Britain, the last lockdown had ended in June. There'd been the huge job losses, then the economic recovery programmes, the building projects, the much-talked-about New Deal. People lived differently. Sure, there were face masks and gloves, walking, riding bicycles. Car use had really dropped away again. And then, for a time, it had been quite nice. Eventually, the politicians went back to their outrageous lying, and things looked like they might be okay, and the buzzword was now the new normal. His mind went back to the accident. The lockdown rules had just changed, travel was now allowed, and he'd only come to Norfolk to see his mother. She was completely gaga at that point, in a nursing home. She didn't even recognize him. But he'd been finally allowed to visit at that point. The virus by now had been downgraded to level one or something. It had been July, July 2021, he thought. The name didn't matter anymore. And earlier in the virus crisis, the care homes in England had been effectively death camps. The politicians lying every step of the way. Ah, oh, that particularly scummy one of them. The advisor chap. Uh, old Cummings, yeah. He was the genius behind the herd immunity plan. Let's kill loads of plebs and then we'll all develop immunity. Soulless bastard. No matter. Nothing really mattered anymore. He remembered the nursing home had been very nice and they'd called him saying he should come, just as a precaution. His mother wasn't well and it wasn't COVID-19. She was just old and her organs were failing. Now she was nearing the end and the care staff were lovely. Really decent people. Kind, too. He'd had to wear a mask and gloves, of course, just in case. But he could see his mother had been well cared for. He could see that. The staff had been so attentive. They were wonderful. But when he'd arrived, she hadn't owned her eyes. It was a blessing, really. The home had taken care of the arrangements. He'd transferred the payment, and he hadn't felt too bad. To be honest, she'd been a lousy mother, not a very pleasant person either. Still, it was his responsibility, him, single child, her, his only family. The service had been on a Thursday and five people came, three staff from the care home, him and the undertaker. And he'd had one more day left at the hotel. He didn't fancy going back to London too quickly. What had possessed him? "'He laughed to himself. "'Probably the sexy young girl on the reception desk. "'No fool like an old fool. "'He'd asked her about local sites of interest, "'and there wasn't any to speak of,' she'd said. "'And the village had been a good way from the nearest town, it seemed. "'She'd said there was an American airbase "'and you could see jets taking off from the hill above it. "'And that wasn't far. "'She showed him on a map. "'He'd come on the train.' No, she said, no, there, there weren't no hire cars. He could hire a bike, big, strong, fit man like him. She even offered to show him the hill. And he'd hired a bike. I mean, how hard could it be? The army truck had hit him at around 50 miles an hour. He'd been lucky. He hadn't even seen it. It was driven by Master Sergeant Bradley Oswald Jr. the Third, And the U.S. Air Force had sent out a military ambulance. The airbase, luckily, had a pretty snazzy small hospital. They'd taken responsibility, flown surgeons in, then back out, doctors, drugs. Luckily for him, he'd been out of it. Induced coma, apparently. That's what the notes he'd found had said. The rest he'd got from old newspapers, recordings, printed emails. COVID-19 slowly disappearing. Then came the mutation. He later watched that first UK press conference. That fat idiot, the Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, waffling on. Then the little slimy one, the chap who was laughingly called the health secretary, Hancock, lying away as usual. (sighs) That was all done now. He shook his head. People weren't that stupid. Covid-40. That was the news strain. Of course they tried to cover it up. But like everything politicians did, it got leaked. That professor guy, what was his name, Jeffries Henderson, whatever it was, COVID-40, named for the fact it attacked 40 organs simultaneously. Death within minutes. No signs, no warning, just death. He briefly pictured how the street riots must have looked a panicking population, the new lockdown, the army, the tanks. It hadn't taken long. Six months? And as far as he could tell, COVID-40 had again first appeared in China, that final mutation. It had happened around three weeks after he'd been hit by the lorry, and true to form, the Chinese leadership had covered it up again. But this time, that didn't work for long. Because people were suddenly dying, quickly, in large numbers, everywhere. The first trial of vaccines didn't even touch it. They found that out quickly. And it spread as quickly as it had before. And of course, countries had now opened airports by then, desperately trying to get their economies moving. Big mistake. The new virus had spread so quickly, all around the globe and him well of course he'd been inside an oxygen tent still in his induced coma by pure chance his nurses had pumped him full of some mystery cocktail of drugs he remembered feeling angry at the time reading his notes the bastards had basically experimented upon him he'd been a guinea pig and then according to the records he could find They'd been ordered to abandon the base. A skeleton crew would remain behind, but the place had been effectively mothballed. Anything majorly lethal removed back stateside. They left behind a handful of US Marine guards and some medical staff for him. But according to the gels he'd found, they lasted just four months. Their final moments not helped by two aircraft crashing into the main building. Both pilots dying in mid-flight. COVID-40. Instant. He thought about it. They had no symptoms. One minute person felt okay. Then they didn't. And then they just died. The brain shut down and they couldn't figure out why. They had tried all around the world, the top scientists desperately trying to find a cure. They hadn't even really finished testing the COVID-19 vaccine and they were giving that out and millions of people had taken it. Unfortunately, it didn't work on COVID-40. As for him, well, he hadn't died. That had been a miracle. It had been touch and go. He'd woken up in his own faeces. The smell had been terrible. At first, he'd no idea of what was going on. He had casts on, a back brace, stitches everywhere. He'd had a halo head cast on. He thought he looked like a character in a horror film. A big steel ring with steel rods stuck into his skull. That had hurt when he got them out. Getting the drips out of his arm had been a walk in the park compared to that. And according to his charts, he'd been there months, the last few weeks entirely alone. His life saved in most ways by the backup generators. The oxygen supply had been turned to full and they'd encased his bed in a sealed plastic tent, obviously to protect him from infection. So there he'd been, left lying in his own mess with more oxygen than he really needed, for weeks and finally, days on end. You add to this the myriad of drugs and fluids had already given him, and somehow, somehow, there he still was, half starved, weak as a kitten, thin as a ghost, nearly dehydrated, in pain, legs still damaged, head throbbing for weeks, but... Alive. He thought he'd be COVID 40 resistant, potentially. And once he'd read everything he could get his hands on, it seemed to become clearer. The world, as it had been, had seemingly ended. Presumably the politicians had gone to their special bunkers, fuck everyone else, which is what they'd presumably thought from the beginning. And meanwhile, people had perished in their millions. He tried phones and radio, nothing. He often felt he couldn't be the only one. But the more he thought about it, who could find him way out there? It had taken him another month to be able to walk without much pain. He'd used stuff he'd found in the medical books in the offices, He had plenty of painkillers, and the dispensary had been built for 200 serving US Air Force personnel. The base had been a test centre for new military spy aircraft, very specialist, all under the radar, very hush-hush. No one knew, apart from seemingly the locals, and they couldn't care less. They just liked the money the base personnel spent in the local shops and pubs. When he'd first got out of bed, he'd seen the dead guy. He was face down in a nearby office. He had on a hazmat suit. Captain Morton, if the plaque on the door was a guide, the man had evidently been his doctor. Right until the end. He'd shut the door. There was another hazmat suit hanging up in the small corridor to his room, and so he'd put that on. And it was only later that day he'd taken the rods out of his skull, Usefully, there were loads of notes and manuals. They weren't drilled in that far. He'd sat on the floor, surrounded by towels. It had been surreal. He'd breathed in the Entonox painkiller, hanging off the foot of his bed. And then he'd used the battery-powered screwdriver tool. It had been agony. He'd bled, not as much as he thought, but he'd sprayed a gel called Quick Clot onto it. It said so in the doctor's guidance notes. It stopped the bleeding very quickly. Of course, he'd fainted. Twice, three times. Blacking out, coming to, starting again, blacking out, coming to. But finally, he'd got them all out. And then he'd bandaged himself up, taken antibiotics. He grinned at the memory. He remembered being covered in blood, But he was alive, somehow. Just off his hospital room was a bathroom, and he remembered the first time he'd used the small shower. He'd been weak, barely able to stand, leaning heavily against the wall. And once he'd figured out where he was, it had taken a lot of effort. He'd managed to wash the blood and the muck off himself, the smell of the industrial hospital shower gel just partially hiding the stench. It was terrible. He remembered. It had taken him three hours in total. And it had hurt a lot. Much of it like some kind of bad dream. But finally, he'd slept. There on the floor, on a pile of spare bedsheets and towels. and He reckoned a day had passed. And then, he'd woken up. It was a miracle. The next few days after that had been vague. He'd finally read the newspapers and reports in the doctor's office. He'd found some food. Of course, he wore the hazmat suit. And then he found an electric wheelchair. Very handy. That had been a good day. And considering how weak he'd felt, he could at least get around. He remembered finding it. And then he'd started to slowly piece everything together. And the weeks had passed and turned to months, and he'd begun to heal, slowly. His accident had been quite severe, but the doctors had done a very good job. His legs were never going to be that good again, he knew. But they'd given him some pretty advanced surgery. He found his x-rays. And considering everything, he could function pretty well. The pain faded with each passing month. Of course, the drugs helped a lot. And happily, there was no shortage of them. Finally, he'd gone around the whole base, or what was left of it. First in the wheelchair, and eventually on foot, once he felt fitter. He felt happy after a fashion He certainly wasn't going to starve. He had tons of provisions, literally tons. And then eventually he'd driven into the nearby village. There were no people, just corpses, many still in the street, with evidence of birds and rats. That's when he'd begun collecting the other supplies, British food, tins, tea, non-frozen stuff, going through people's houses and kitchen cupboards. He'd felt bad at first, but realised it was just survival. The airbase itself was very well stocked, and some of its stores had gone up in the plane crash fires. However, a considerable amount of food and goods still remained. Way more than enough, he felt. Years' worth. He'd also acquired a considerable defence arsenal. He didn't know why, it just made him feel more relaxed, to feel he could defend himself. From who? He didn't know. His first attempts at firing any of the weapons were quite comical in a way. The noise had made him drop the large pistol the first time he'd tried it. But he'd persevered, and with practice, he'd become quite the marksman. And the decision to use the long, low storage sheds at the end of the runway as a home, it came early on. He liked it out on the far runway edge, wild flowers now spreading like a meadow, their bright colours cheerful and pleasant. He just didn't want to be in the old buildings. He often thought he surely couldn't be the only person left alive. There had to be others somewhere. Perhaps they'd find him. He was in a very good place. He had plenty of food, a large clean water supply, fuel. In fact, you name it, he had it. He'd even found solar power generators. He could run fridges forever. And that had cheered him up. His one regret, however, the lack of tea. He had tons of coffee. He didn't like coffee. He'd never like coffee. He liked tea. Yorkshire tea if it could be had. But for some strange reason, the US Air Force liked fruit teas. He didn't like fruit teas. Most of his tea supplies he'd garnered from the few houses and pubs in the nearby village when he'd gone through, searching for what he could find. His view from the storage shed took in the whole of the base. The hospital wing he'd been in had survived the air crashes unscathed. And despite its proximity to the main building, it was in good condition. It had an abundance of body bags, unsurprising for a military base. And he'd used these throughout the village. It had been very difficult for him. He didn't know why, but he felt it just wasn't right, leaving those poor people laying around, so he cleared the streets, the houses. Of course, he wore his hazmat suit. He never found the young hotel receptionist. He was, he was glad for that. By the time he'd finished, there'd been 120 bodies. He'd counted them, 15 being children. Those he'd found the hardest. He had to look away, tears fogging up his visor. He'd placed them into individual graves in the village churchyard. he dug each one with a shovel. He didn't know why he'd done that, but he felt good about it. And finally, he'd placed flowers on every single grave, teddy bears on the little ones. Then he'd gone inside the church and rung the bell. It seemed fitting. The military folk on the base... He felt differently about He was unsure why. Maybe because they were part of the system that killed so many. And that wasn't fair. He knew that. He, he just really wasn't clear. He didn't hate them or anything. He just felt different. So he'd found a kind of digger. And he'd put the bodies he'd found into its bucket. And then he'd emptied them into a big long hole he'd made. He counted 30. He'd bagged them up, just like in the village and he'd made a cross on each area. He'd said some words. He knew they'd been loved, had families, friends. Their families and friends all probably dead now. He'd dug a single grave for Captain Morton, and he'd put the name plaque from his office on it, gluing it to the cross he'd made. He owed the guy that much, he felt. He'd saved his life and he put the picture of the man's wife and children in his hand. Everyone on the base was dead. Everyone in the village was dead. He didn't like to think about it, but it was looking to be a dead world. He sipped his tea. The storage shed had a tower at one end. It was around 50 feet high and it was obviously part of the airfield lighting system. And at its top, two huge slender steel scaffold-like towers rose, originally covered in lights, and it had a hand-winch-operated lift platform. And after around six months, he'd taken to going up it, scanning the area for signs of life. He'd found some very powerful military binoculars, but the more he looked, nothing. He saw nothing. And all the radio equipment simply yielded silence. In the village, someone had drawn a crude painting on a wall. It was of the British Prime Minister Johnson and the idiot Hancock grinning, their faces and hands covered in blood. He'd once seen a poster of it on the internet and some graffiti. They'd both be in some secret bunker somewhere, he figured. He'd seen stuff about it on television. Nuclear bomb-proof, airtight, sealed. They were welcome. They could sit and plan. Plan on what? Everyone was dead. They were effectively powerless. There was no one left to lie to or manipulate. Grimly, he thought about them. They were just surviving. Underground, like cockroaches. Very fitting, he thought. Parasites living in the gloom. Inside, he hoped that there must be other people out there. People like him, COVID-40 resistant. He didn't know what to do. He couldn't go anywhere. He needed to stay close to the base. He had his binoculars. He tried radios, but nothing. Some days, paranoia overtook him. He would put a bullet magazine into the machine gun check his pistol was ready. What if others came for his supplies? But he realised it was a fantasy. In different days he'd imagine nice people, maybe a woman, maybe some children, anybody. And at night his head would ache from the thought. So there he sat, in the sunshine, the warm wind blowing across his face, and he looked out across the long, waving grass. Today was a bad day. It was the last teabag. Well, the Covid days. I think we try to forget them, but they're still just there at the edges. And that one, I will confess, was a bit dark. And you might think, well, he was a bit angry when he wrote that. And I guess in a way I was. But that's the job of a writer... I'm a commentator as much as I'm an entertainer, I think. Anyway, that's enough of me babbling on. It's time to say goodbye to you. Please follow us on social media. We know. Please follow us on thestoryhive.co.uk. See our other selection. And I'm going to leave you with my normal ending, which is I hope the world reminds you of a very old happy memory today. Bye now. (laughs)